Hello, and welcome to another edition of Podcast for the Future. I'm your host, Tim Chrisman. I'm joined today by Ed Ruth. Ed is a serial entrepreneur who has founded and led multiple startups across multiple sectors, ranging from marketing to used cars. He is a jack of all trades, currently leads Rello, a supply chain as a service platform that is revolutionizing the way that brands make, ship, and track products. This is a platform that's powered by a vetted network of manufacturers across 15 countries, providing brands with quality, reliable, and sustaining contract manufacturing. I'm excited to uh, have a chance to talk with Ed, not least of all because uh, in some of my time running companies, I have run into some of the problems it sounds like Rello is here to solve. So with that, uh, let's get to it. Tim, hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, Ed? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, gladly. The general idea is to get at what it is, what that challenge is worth doing that you're working on, yeah. what gets you up in the morning, and how did you get to where you get? Because the subtext for listeners is it doesn't matter what you did in school, doesn't matter what you've done in your right. career. You can, if you have a passion for something, just go for it. Yeah, I love it. That's a great, nice open format. Yeah, again, thank you for having me on. This is this great. Why don't I just start with a bit of background and provide some context to people about myself, the journey, and then Perfect. move on to who, what Rello is and what we're up to and where we're going. Yeah. Feel free to, to yep. rein me back in if I veer off. But cool. So I'm originally from the UK, for those who, who can tell, and a small town in Southwest England called Borton in Dorset. That's a sort of place that has more animals than people. So it's a relative relatively quiet upbringing, but growing up, I always had this passion for building things. And I remember I had this little journal that I would write, write down business ideas in. And I actually looked back on it recently and there were definitely some ideas in there that were pretty rogue. I remember I spent a summer when I was 15 researching food dehydration centers because I thought they would be the solution to world hunger. But among all these ideas, one common theme, good and bad, was that I always wanted them to have a, a positive impact. So the objective wasn't solely monetary for me it yeah. was really building something that, that that made a difference that was really where the passion was and so i followed this entrepreneurial drive if you will up north to to manchester in north england where i studied international management and as part of my degree i had the opportunity to go study at usc in los angeles for a year and so while i was there i was really captivated by a lot of the startup culture and the sense of entrepreneurship which was really lacking in the uk at the time particularly in tech and there was this real sense of i guess for lack of a better way of putting it, admiration for people that were entrepreneurial right. and yeah, yeah. ambitious and try to do big things and take risks. And I think that's just more common in the US in general, but I think it's very much concentrated from a tech perspective in, in LA. Yeah, I made some great connections and friends and I ended up getting a job with a friend's dad who, who gave, me, gave me a job and I ended up moving here full time. And with the goal of starting a company, but at this point I still had no idea, no idea what, yeah, yeah. very much a blank slate. And so I wore a few different hats. I started out in business development for a product design studio and then dabbled in, in digital marketing. But really my, my, my passion was for technology and using the latest technology to solve hard problems. And I view the holy grail of this is to disrupt a big traditional inefficient industry, one of the real challenging, challenging objectives. Yeah. So I, my solution to this was I became somewhat addicted to coding when I ended up teaching myself how to code and 
I built a few platforms to varying degrees of success and, and functionality, but the goal was never to be a developer. For me, coding was just a set of tools that provided me the ability to iterate over ideas quickly. You can act as like a self-contained unit and just explore things without having to worry about reaching out to other people. And you could make a lot of you can make a lot of progress very quickly and you get a lot of feedback very quickly. And so I found that really valuable. And one of the platforms I built was a peer-to-peer -peer consulting where people could use like a Google type interface and people could search for help with things. And it's, it was a list of experts that you could contact on demand. And while doing this, the I saw a rapid rise in the number of people that were searching for help with manufacturing products and in particular, manufacturing sustainable products. And I was starting to explore this data and I saw this trend explode and it became pretty evident pretty quickly that there was yeah. like a huge unserved market of, of small, medium businesses that were looking to manufacture sustainable products. And so I, I tested out a few different marketing campaigns. And from the start, we were getting like 20 leads a day of 10 bucks. Our acquisition cost was pretty much negligible. And the demand is often the most challenging point for a business and for a startup. The previous startups that I had been involved in or struggled for demand. I think a lot of the time people come up with an idea and then try and find a place in the market for it. And this was a different approach of, okay, here's, look at this unserved demand. How can you cater to that? So I really piv I pivoted to, to focus on this full time. And I set up this new company called Rello and pursued this goal of building a platform that makes it easy for brands to, to make, ship and track sustainable products. And to do so by providing providing end-to-end -end transparency over the supply chain from source to store. And we do this through the use of what we call product passports. And so this sort of this idea at the time it ticked all the boxes for me. It was a, yeah. a big, traditional, inefficient industry that was ripe for disruption. And I was fortunate enough at the time, one of my, one of my good friends and now co-founder shared in this vision and joined me and I wouldn't have been able to do it alone. But the first few years were were, were a real crash course in, in manufacturing and supply chain. There were, there were multiple times when we were a whisker away from failure, but you barely made it through. Oh yeah. And at one point we we're managing you know, dozens of orders across say 20 factories in 10 countries. And we were doing it all manually. It was like WhatsApp, emails, phone calls, spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. We hadn't built our platform yet. And so this is when things started to go wrong and you hit the sort of terminal velocity and the products were getting delivered with mistakes. We had notices from customs that we hadn't declared our imports properly. And you're taking out a loan at this time to cover the operating expenses. So it all compounded to a point where it was on the verge of failure. And I remember the real low point, I have this unenviable task of having to file international tax returns. And there was this like one form in this, like, 50, in this 50 page return that if you miss the filing of that one form, there is a fine of 10 grand a month for every month that you miss the filing. And I found this out six months after the filing was due. Oh, no. and, and this was at the point where you're like burnt out, juggling all these deals. And uh, so that was definitely the moment where I, I remember, I look back and I'm like, that was definitely a throw in the towel. Yeah. Despite all these issues, the company was doing better than it ever had. We had the, the, between this rising anti-China sentiment where people were leaving China left, right and center for various reasons like tariffs and also just again, public sentiment. A couple, and then COVID, as I mentioned, there was just enormous disruption in supply chains. And that's honestly sometimes the best time to try and get into an industry when it's absolute chaos. We were inundated with companies that needed everything from accessing new manufacturers to getting into new markets to moving near shore was a big thing. And at the end of the day, improving 
sustainability. And so we were forced to work through the problems very quickly and, and got more and more traction and, and better understand our, our customers and, and the market and the opportunity. And so we were really, we were solving real problems for people and getting a lot of value. And so that that kind of gave me faith and motivation to keep going. And thankfully, I was able to get out of that fine. Despite all the issues, we were able to keep all our promises to our customers and kept our commitments to our suppliers and manufacturers. So it was a pretty wild time. It was very much like trying to build a plane while flying, saying it was very much what it felt like. I felt like we got 10 years experience in 18 months. It was one of those crash courses. And then, and then things started to stabilize after that. We, we began to get fewer, better customers. We really just started to focus. And I feel like that's a lot of the advice we've been getting. We're currently going through fundraising and we're getting a lot of advice of, and just tips and, and from friends and family and everyone of just focus is the most important thing. And so we really doubled down. I'm sure you've seen that in the things that you've done. We try and juggle too many things. We try and pursue many things. You just, you don't really make any progress at all in, in any of them. And so we really focused on at that point, fewer, better customers and fewer, better manufacturers and quality over quantity. And it was around this time that we met our third partner and co-founder, Vic, who was this 20 plus year manufacturing veteran, owns his own factories, ran a big manufacturing network that supplies to big brands like the Ralph Lauren, Burberry, Guess. And, yeah, and so yeah. we really, we told him our vision. He really had all the experience and credibility that we needed. And he came in, he loved the idea and came in and took over all of our manufacturing operations, which was an absolute blessing and allowed us to focus on building out the technology. And we really positioned ourselves as more of a, a technology company. And, and so one of the main takeaways from this is, you know, it allowed our, it gave us an opportunity for our idea to mature a lot, being in the trenches every day for the best part of two years, speaking to thousands of customers. You, you really start to see where the pain points are for a customer. Yeah. And just to, I guess, just to lay out the main problem and get onto to Rello is right now, there's just this real severe lack of supply chain transparency and visibility over manufacturing. This has led to the sustainability industry being riddled with lack of accountability, yep. misleading claims, lack of transparency. And the fact that most brands have no idea where their products come from. You know, oh. Yeah. It's, and like 50% of even major brands, only 50% dis disclose information about their supply chains. And you're not even talking about some of the small, medium businesses, which is what we really try to focus on. Yeah. They don't have, they don't have the luxury of, and the technology to, to have that kind of level of transparency. Um, it's probably, so, they probably don't, just don't know. Um, right. And, yeah. And, and a lot of the time it's not even, it's not even that they don't want to. A lot of the times they, they just can't. It's not all the sort of dishonest brands. A lot of the time people are trying to do the right thing. But for whatever, for various means. So H&M, it's a funny story. H&M last month, you've heard greenwashing, the yeah, term greenwashing, yeah, yeah. essentially where people make misleading claims about the environmental impact of something. And H&M last month, they had on their website for a range of products, they're getting sued for this. And they the claims were that some of their products had 30, used 30% 30 less water than regular products. But their website had a, like a glitch. And it, actually the data point was minus 30 and not 30. And it presented all the data for all of their sustainability metrics. It pre presented them in the, the inverse. Yeah. So they're in real trouble right now trying to overcome that. But just that's an unfortunate situation. But it does, they do have some negligence behind the scenes of various, I think that they, they could do a, a better job of providing some of the standards and upholding some of the standards they claim. But that was really just bad, unlucky. And but oh, it's yeah. the same thing. It leads to confusion and it's just misleading the consumer. And so, like when we go back to the businesses, like the main priorities that businesses have, McKinsey did a study recently globally about what the biggest priorities were. Number one is sustainability, and number two is transparency. Yep. And it's just it's it's the world we live in. But to put things in perspective on a more macro level, the fashion industry is responsible for 
of global carbon emissions, which is that's more than all international and maritime international flights and maritime uh, shipping combined. And so at the current pace we're on, it's going to increase by 50% by 2030 a lot of it due to the rise of fast fashion everyone wants more things like more things now right and uh, people have had to change models as a result but it's not it turns out not to be good for the environment surprise, surprise. <laughs> who would have known uh, right away who would have known who would have known so yeah greenwashing claims have skyrocketed in recent years a lot of this there is this massive shift in trend which comes as no surprise to anyone of People are trying to be more eco-conscious and you have all these environmental reports that are getting released with all this data and there are enormous incentives for brands to tap into this more eco-conscious shopper yeah. and the temptation to do that. And Patagonia is considered like the gold standard and they do it well. I have a lot of brands that make misleading claims in order to tap into some of this, some of the sustainability market, which are at best misleading and at worst, it can be criminal, right? Yeah. No, so, I saw that. So I started a nutritional supplement company. Right. years back and that was all over the place that was why i started the company was because like i couldn't find the quality i needed trust that anything was what it said it was right. incredible yeah and so how did you go about identifying the suppliers and the source of the materials that you used in in, in those supplements the first problem was finding a manufacturer who is willing to actually source quality ingredients yeah that, that was hard the like look low hanging fruit isn't so easy to get yeah yeah i'm like look i'll pay for high quality ingredients but and they're like but it's going to be more expensive and most of them didn't even carry it didn't even know how to source it and it eventually found a manufacturer on the west coast that did source and could trace where they got it from so that was right. key you kept it domestic you manufactured uh, we we couldn't some of the ingredients just aren't made right. right and so it was a matter of both us and the manufacturer tested the ingredients to double check the claims of the original producer and yeah. once that would that that being checked out it worked but we were our cost was two or three times higher than any of our other competitors because they didn't care. Yeah, I mean, there is a premium that people are willing to pay for quality, yeah. but only so much still have to be competitive within oh, yeah. that bracket. Oh yeah. And, and that's the thing, when you're talking about consumer products and consumer brands, like the margins are tight. Yep. It's very yep. hard to try and, there's not as much wiggle room as buyers realize when they're like, okay, don't cut corners with this, don't cut corners with this. And it's challenging. And a lot of the times, especially on the supplier side, you know, most of these suppliers that, that we deal with, at least, are in developing countries, and they don't have the luxury of being of prioritizing sustainability over over the sort right. of economic aspect. And yeah, it's tough because there are a lot of people who try and do the right thing, as I say, but they just fall short for because of the inherent complexities involved in the industry and the lack of transparency. One of the things which we realized very quickly when we got into the industry is one of the main areas of confusion and debate is that there is still a lack of clarity over what the term sustainable actually means. You know, oh, when you yeah. have, yeah, when you have to like, take a t-shirt, for example, with 80% sustainable materials and 20% untraceable materials, does that count as a, a sustainable t-shirt? What about a hundred percent organic cotton, but as a high carbon footprint because it got shipped by air? There's this lack of a, a universally agreed upon definition of sustainability. It makes it difficult for brands and consumers alike to sort of to navigate the space, even when their intentions are pure. And, and the veracity of the term sustainable is made more challenging when considered like ESG factors, like environmental, social governance. You have, should a carbon neutral footprint product be called sustainable if it was made using force? Labor standards would technically fall under the ESG umbrella um, right. and be directly related to sustainability, but it seems wildly unethical. 
exactly. to make sustainability claims, not a product at the expense of humane and safe labor standards. Yeah. So no, it's, it's like alcohol being labeled like gluten free or. Yeah. Who are you trying to convince yeah. at that point? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, this, it, it's enormous confusion. And people, it, it just, it's such a high barrier to entry from everything from the sort of knowledge required to often the resources as well. Yeah. And, and so our approach to this was not necessarily trying to be. 100% sustainable from day one. Our strategy was to take a more granular, bottom-up approach and focus first on what we can control and measure with the goal of providing brands with the access to, to, to transparent supply chains yep. so that they can build trust with their customers, not by being perfect, but by being honest. But it's, yeah, and, and that really led to this objective being cemented of us trying to help consumer brands manufacture sustainable products. Because initially we just started out with just manufacturing regular products because we did again like we 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 are still growing and we didn't have the luxury to turn down big orders because they didn't want them to be sustainable so our journey has been a work in progress and we recognize some of the challenges with our suppliers who have who say they're only 70 percent of the deals they do are sustainable and 30 percent they're not because they the reality on the ground is that you don't have that luxury to to have to be perfect yeah Uh, it's just not how things go and so we need to break down this black and white treatment of the word sustainability and just and try and first understand what it where we are individually right. is, is brands and then how we can accurately measure and quantify certain criteria to to track improvements because it's really the process of getting better that we should be focused on and oh. not this and not this, if you're not 100% sustainable, you're, you're a terrible brand. It's, it's tough. Our approach to this problem is, is threefold. One, we have built a, a manufacturing network that is the highly vetted with the, the most stringent sustainability, compliance, and ethical standards available. But we're dealing with thousands of people across yeah. multiple manufacturers and, and countries. So the reality is of the operations on the ground is it goes a lot further than just check marks on a page as zeros and ones. So right, we have right. to... The reality is that in order to get this business to work with such a human component, yeah. we needed to first find manufacturers that not only check all the boxes from a performance and a compliance standpoint, but that were aligned with us in the pursuit of manufacturing sustainably and transparency. And not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's good business. Just to, to throw out a stat, the last two years, the number of consumers that were willing to paying more for sustainable products increased by 42%. And that, that trend is pretty much seen like across the board in terms of the direction that these are going. And again, it probably doesn't come as any idea, any surprise to people that these are the way that, that things are shifting. Yeah. So when we were building this network, like we would be foolish to think, as I mentioned, that these companies would sacrifice economically in order to operate more sustainably. And so we had to make sure that these incentives were aligned and we built a system that created greater economic value, not at the expense of sustainability, but because of it. And finding this synergy between people and technology is where I think the real progress and innovation can be made in traditional industries like ours. And it's just, for me, it's just a fascinating topic. Finding, I think a lot of the times there is this very sort of Western technological, like sexy approach where you have a silver bullet of technology, you map it onto an industry and it, it solves all the problems without there being any other component and that obviously that has worked in several industries but a lot of these traditional ones where there is this large human component yep yep you you one of the previous companies we did there was uh, it was trying to get adoption at used car dealerships for this automotive technology that we were rolling out and trying to get used car dealers in kansas to adopt 
some of the latest technology that we had was a fool's error. It was just so much friction that you get when you try, sure. when you start to try and change people's behavior, that's when things get, go south pretty quickly. Yeah. And we really focused on integrating technology from the ground up with the right suppliers and having everyone aligned in terms of incentives, because that really is the only way you can get the adoption you need, in my opinion, to make a change in some of these industries. And the second point of the sort of the, the threefold solution that, that we, uh, how we approach this is a platform, making it, make, creating a, a single point of access to a supply chain ecosystem of services that for everything you need to launch a product to manage a product from design and manufacturing and development to some of the more mundane like financing and logistics but allow a simple point that makes it easy for customers and cuts through some of this noise of some of the challenges that you face of trying to find the right suppliers and go to this platform where you know that everyone who you could find or that could manufacture products on there is has been certified, is sustainable, has, does operate to the highest standard. And, you know, that the sort of the, this portal is, uh, I think, the second component. And lastly, and perhaps most exciting, is to provide a traceability from uh, the source to store for the products through the use of these product passports, which are these digital product-specific reports that are linked to a product via like a QR code on the label. So you, oh, would, okay. you would look in a store and you'd see a product and you scan a QR code on the care label on the inside and you'd be taken to this digital report and it provides brands and consumers with everything they need to know about a product. The product history, all the supplier yeah. information, the material information, everything authenticated and verified. And we're currently running a pilot program right now with a handful of our customers for a, for a public launch early next year. But this is the sort of the balance between technology and, and people that we're trying to get right. And the we're trying to bottle, bottle, I guess, all the sustainability and transparency that we can ingest into the back of the platform and distill it and present it to customers in a way that they get a lot of value from it. And brands can then use it to, to mark and charge sustainability premiums to provide more transparency. And so this product passport really is a sort of culmination, if you will, of a lot of other areas of what we're trying to do. I think it captures, captures well the solution that I think the market needs right now. No, agreed. And doing it in a way that doesn't have the same sort of friction that a company trying to do it on its own. There is a lot of, yeah, and there's also a lot of benefit about being just independent. But there's a sustainable apparel coalition, which is they have a, a similar metric called the Higg Index. And the group that runs it is made up of 250 members, all of which are some of the largest apparel brands in the world, like Nike, H&M, Gap. And the total revenues are about a trillion dollars or something absurd. And the main metric used by apparel companies in the fashion industry is the Hig Index, which is run by the main apparel brands in the fashion industry. So there's this real conflict of interest. And I'm sure that some of the intentions are pure, but it's very hard to navigate some of the noise when you have such a conflict of interest. And so there's a lot of you know, people are very disgruntled about some of the approaches they take because it, it is a bit too too close to home for some of them to comment on. But so it's really, it's an interesting time to, to try and make a change in this industry. There is obviously a lot of disruption going on and the greenwashing claims are compounding seemingly every day. We're, we feel like it's the right time for what we're trying to do. And we're getting a lot of demand. We're over 50 customers right now. We've got up to around 60, 70 manufacturers in our network in about a dozen countries. And we're really putting our foot on the gas and trying to grow this. As I mentioned, we're doing a pilot program right now with a handful of our customers for the product passports. And one of the biggest, one of the biggest questions we get asked, and going back to my 
comment earlier about how about demand is yeah. one thing it's one thing talking to talking to investors and, and brands and saying look there's a lot of opportunity for this but actually talking to the brands is really the only way to, to determine whether there is going to be adoption and one of the benefits we have is our, our sort of distribution advantage of we have through our network of suppliers and partners we have access to direct directly to the supply chains of hundreds of brands which they serve oh wow and so rather than doing like a top-down rollout and distribution of going to each of these brands and saying hey check out this product passport our strategy is to leverage the pre-existing relationships that we have with our suppliers and roll out the product through bottom-up distribution and act and implement it in the, within the supply chain and then roll out to the customers and the brands that way and so far it seems to be seems to be working and we're getting some some good early feedback so it's definitely an exciting time yeah no it sounds like it so you mentioned vetting the suppliers how does that work yeah. Yeah. So the, the process really involves, it can involve up to 10 different steps, depending on where they are. We have people on the ground in the majority of our locations and they do most of the due diligence. We do fill in the gaps with third-party accredited auditors and inspectors, but th th that's been one of the challenges is Tim is scaling to new markets where there's a lot of opportunities such as near shore and maintaining the same level of credibility vetting that we do but we're fortunate that we do have we live in an age where you can you can video and digital yeah, yeah, yeah. element of going through and inspecting factories is good but this, this is a touch and feel industry there's no oh, real yeah. replacement for, for being there and having someone on the ground and so we have had to we have had to to grow it's almost like a marketplace you have to grow both sides of it at the same time so we've had to scale vetting capabilities alongside the manufacturing capabilities it doesn't take that much for the brand for our own brand image to be ruined if we oh, yeah. you know manufacturer is exposed as being xyz right oh yeah so we, but we do everything from an initial interview to factory visits we we verify all the credentials that are associated with the supplier we do reference checks we also under the, the freedom of information act you can actually petition the U.S. Customs and Border Protection to release the shipping logs for the last five years into the U.S. It's one of the benefits about being in America. The, the Freedom of Information Act is yeah. all powerful. And so we can analyze all the shipping logs um, into the U.S., which is a million rows, of, millions of rows of data, and see the shipping history of the majority of our supply network, which is completely separate to whatever they say. You can't always trust, even if people have a good reputation, we need to come at it from multiple angles. And so the goal is to really try and build this bulletproof vetting process. And we're still learning it and getting better. And the challenge is also you have to rely on some other certifications and other yeah. creditors to, to really build some of this stuff out. You can't, especially with the limited resources we have as a startup, you have to have a certain amount of good faith in how other people operate, especially when that's their main job. So RAP is a great organization that does a commendable job, but they, every, everyone has holes. And again, like our job isn't trying to be perfect and say, this is 98% sustainable. It's really to provide these product passports on all of our products that, that give the brand and the consumer transparency and say, okay, yeah. these are the, we can measure 70% of this product accurately, very well. And this is the criteria that we measured on each. There is 30%, which is still, we're still unsure. This is what we, this is what we know. So just to present all the data that we actually know about a product and build on that. We start by developing trust and then build from there to, to get to a more sustainable solution. Because it is this lack of trust now that is, yeah, that is it's corrosive. It's corrosive. It's eroding a lot of the, 
the the consumer trust in, in brands at the moment. So where the good thing is this is a topic that excites people. People want to get involved with this more. And there are a lot of active investors in, in spaces like this and brands who want to be the pioneer of yeah, yeah. sustainable initiatives. So it's been fun. It's been fun to talk to a lot of people and it's there's a lot of uh, yeah, there's a lot going on for sure. No, for sure. And it's not necessarily that people want everybody to be perfect. They just want to right. know what's going on. Right. Yeah. It's balance, right? Because the, there's a sort of a minimum amount of information sometimes people want. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's going to be an ongoing journey. And a lot of what our conversations are now is to join us on this journey. Mm -hmm. let, yeah. Join us to, in figuring this out and, and join us figuring out the right way. Sure. You know, it's, we're not trying to cut any corners. I think that's when things get burned. But there is a lot of scrutiny over this industry. And so trying to navigate those hurdles yeah. is, is challenging. You don't want to put any you know, steps wrong. No, um, for sure. Yeah. And what does it look like for a company coming to you and saying, hey, we want to, we're a startup. We want to use your network of manufacturers. Yeah. Good question. So right now we're very much invite only. So okay. we would just go through first, we'd look at the brand holistically and just have a real chat with them about yeah. what they're looking to achieve, what their objectives are. And if we think it's a good fit, we would invite them to our platform. We would connect them with, we'd look at what projects they had going on. We'd look at the products they're looking for. And maybe they wanted to say move near shore, or maybe they wanted to use more sustainable materials. And so we'd talk to our suppliers and we'd start collaborating. You have to, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people with different skill sets and, and knowledge that we need to loop in for various things. And maybe they want to improve their efficiency. So it's very dependent. Everything's very case by case. Sure. Some of these brands. So depending on the criteria, we would put together, we would tailor a, a solution for them and put together a plan and implementation strategy of how they, for example, want to move out of China to India and adopt a BCI cotton, which is the better cotton inde inde yeah. index and better quality. So we put together that and as I say, we, if they need help with logistics, we would walk them through it. But nothing happens. The challenge that we had initially is the, the, the timeline for a lot of the deals in this industry are very long. It's, it's, sometimes they're as long as six to nine to 12 months. Yeah. From start of the development of a new product to to final delivery it can take a long time. And like we, we work with everyone from entrepreneurs and small medium businesses to, to public companies. And Everyone has different, yeah, some people yeah. want to order now and have it, have it delivered in 30 days and others are planning for next summer already. And we have, we're trying to build out the technology to, to manage it as, as best as we can. But there's a lot of, there's, there's, the funny thing is a lot of people who we talk to who see different opportunities in what we're trying to do. There was a person we were talking to yesterday who said, oh, you guys should try and leverage financing more. And someone else say, oh, you guys should go into logistics more. So going back to the, the focus point, like that's been one of the things that we've really try to uh, prioritize is just keeping our eye on the prize and not get too distracted by all these other uh, yeah, ideas yeah. About, no how good they are yeah no that makes sense and it's something that doesn't always come naturally to entrepreneurs because they're like <laughs> i see this opportunity i can do something yeah uh, as i say the, the last thing a company needs is another good idea exactly exactly um so yeah it's hard kudos to y'all for keeping that focus hey yeah that's that's a grind every day but when you're doing something you love, you just roll with it. It doesn't well, really feel like work. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and doing it towards a good part and to have people around you that are excited and building a team and building a company. There's a real, there's a real enjoyment and satisfaction in that. So it's been pretty rewarding to date. No, it sounds like it. And this is, you mentioned at the beginning, like there's a lot of luck that comes into this related to COVID yeah. and things working yeah. out. 
And yeah, like you know, doing this 15 years ago, not only do you not have the data available, it's just not the same demand signal. And so this is one of those ideas that works, just works now. Everything fits together and it's, it's pretty cool to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And it's evolved. It evolved pretty quickly over the last couple of years. Right. There's with all the supply chain issues, there was just so much, there was so much going on. There were so many companies that, that, that crashed and burned. There were so many that took off. And then there were these COVID companies like Zoom, for example, that just did really well. So there was so much, there was so much chaos and it was hard to really anchor an idea mm. in, in one place for long enough without getting, while getting pulled in all these different directions. And, uh, and so the fact that we made it through that whole period and are now in a position where I'm, you look back and you think that could, you could have gone a lot of different ways mm. as the, as the journey unfolded, but this is definitely one where I know that everyone on our team is, is pretty excited to be. Did, did, did you experience a similar thing during COVID? Did you have things oh, pulling you yeah. in a different direction? Maybe yeah. any person I know in the space industry, by the way, Tim. That's well, pretty uh, good. Glad I, yeah. yeah, no, it was a joke with people that it's getting too attached to some version of your company or what you're doing is a recipe for disaster because it's got to change. You said you got 10 years of experience in 18 months, and that's probably pretty close to true with the amount of change that occurred, the number of disasters you faced. And yeah. it's just, it's been for the past few years, just a time when you had to move fast. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I love it. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's invigorating. There was... You could almost see it play out in real time when we had, at the beginning, we were getting on with these COOs and CEOs of these, these large companies and sometimes like the VPS sourcing at these multinational corporations. And at the beginning, you're like, you're very much walking the, not, you're not walking the walk yet. You're very much just putting on the front and trying to do it. But over time, after as things evolve, you realize that you can start to handle some of the the questions better and you start to feel a lot more prepared and you do see that experience manifest pretty quickly when you're forced to it and you're yeah. when your feet probably feet to the fire you really will absorb the information that you need to and, mm -hmm. and hit the ground running where you have to because you know there's no option there's, there's, exactly. that uh saying burn the boats is something that i always like to come back to because it's just it encapsulates as better than as better than anything else of the idea of just no turning back and i think that's been something that we've definitely we haven't really thought about the, the turn it back at any point yeah that's how you know you're doing something that means something and you're excited about so it's it's that's something that we all want and right. some people that manifest by having that stable job that they do that for 40 years but they want that meaning and to be excited and others go out and get 18 months of experience that looks a lot like decades of work. Yeah, yeah. And so the, right now we're really, I always think that some of the, like the biggest innov innovations sometimes come from people outside the industry because oh, they, yeah. they approach the problem with a, a fresh perspective and without yeah. any higher mental parameters. If you're taught in an industry when you're growing up in an industry that, you know, how to think about a problem, then likely you're going to stumble across the same dead ends as, exactly. as everyone else. So for example, I, I know in 2003M, developed a like a breakthrough concept for present preventing infections that were associated with surgery after getting input from a theatrical makeup artist oh. and she was just coincidentally she was a specialist in preventing skin infections and i think the key is to find these 
like appropriately analogous fields from which to take ideas and expertise. I always used to think of Slumdog Millionaire a lot when yeah. I would apply like things that just happened in my past that led me to a point where, oh, that moment really gave me what I needed to know for this moment and how a lot of those things really have a knock-on effect and positioning you well. So for me, all the, wearing all those different hats was was quite a, looking back now, it developed a, a sort of a more of a generalist skill set that I was able to apply to some of these problems. And it's fun to, it's fun to go through that. It's fun to build out with a business with things that you've learned. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's really cool seeing this idea you had start to take a life of its own. And yeah, yeah it's, it's so exciting. Yeah, we're obviously going through going a period right now of raising money right now. We're looking to do a big launch in in the beginning of next year for the product passport. So it's, uh, it's all go. There are a lot of phone calls and Zooms and investors yep. and advisors and all sorts of things going on right now. It's been, it feels like it's already Thursday. <laughs> I know, right? It's, it's, uh, it's fun when you're doing something you, you, you enjoy. It's kind of a pleasure. And then you got to enjoy the ride. Otherwise, you're just going to get to the point where it's you, know, you reach the end, you look around and you're like, what's the point? But what was no, the point? I say this now. I say this now. And if I was back in that position at the beginning, I'd be like, what is going on? <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I know we're getting close on time here, but it, it's been great talking to you, Ed. Yeah, I appreciate you again inviting me on. We're going to have to do something at some point. I want to pick your brain on some of the space stuff. Yeah, I, uh, absolutely. Credentials that you've got in that area. It's a fascinating area. Yeah, we'll have to do a follow-up and, and chat more. Nice. I appreciate cool. it, Mal. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for being here. All right, man. Have a good one.